Good evening. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Resurrection. A special welcome to all who are uh, tuning in in our live stream this evening. Um, I think there might have been some technical problems in the morning, but if you're tuning in this evening, uh, we're glad that you're joining us, and it's an amazing thing to ponder that we are united by God's Spirit wherever we are, together before the throne of Christ. This is an amazing reality as the family of God, so it's a joy to be joined together. Now, uh, Church of the Resurrection, uh, for the past few weeks, we've been covering our series that we've called Kingdom Diplomacy. And this series uh, is uh, going through Romans chapter 12 um, through chapter 15. And this major section of Romans is the so what of the gospel. If it is true that Jew and Gentile are made right with God by trusting Jesus Christ, if it is true that God has poured out his spirit on his people, if it is true that God's promises to Israel and to the whole world have not failed, in case you're wondering, that's a brief summary of Romans chapter 1 through 11. Now, if all of these things are true, how then shall we live? We who have received the indescribable mercies of God Almighty, how shall we then live? Now, Paul answers this question throughout Romans 12 through 15, and he paints a picture of the church as a living sacrifice to God and all of us as ambassadors of this kingdom of God as we sojourn in the empires of humankind. Now today we're going to unpack uh, what this theme means in Romans chapter 14, but before we do, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you for your word that is clear and present with us and for your spirit that can illumine it to us and empower us to become more like Christ. So we pray that these words would not be mine, but that the word of God would speak to us clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I grew up in Detroit, also known as the Motor City. Now, hands down, we had the best auto show. We'd see all the new vehicles also in our streets before any other city in the country. Um, now, uh, in the church where I grew up, uh, most of the adults in the church, including my dad, they worked for one of the big three, as we called them, General Motors, Ford, or Chrysler. Now, this led to some friendly rivalries in our church, especially among us kids. The day that my dad brought home a test vehicle, the 2002 fourth-generation Pontiac Firebird with dual side scoops and honeycomb patterns in the backlights, we were the talk of the whole youth group. Now, sadly, I was only in driver's ed, so I wasn't allowed to drive this thing, even though I begged and begged my dad, but, uh, you know, so was it. But the thing that amazed me was that my buddies in youth group were still convinced, these are the buddies whose dads worked for Ford, they were still convinced that the Mustang was a better car than the Firebird. I can't see how they could think that. And every Super Bowl Sunday, our youth group, we'd gather at someone's house and we'd watch the game. Uh, we'd also watch the commercials, and since we were from Detroit and there was never a chance that the Lions would make it to the Super Bowl, oftentimes the commercials were more interesting. Now, there was always this kind of unofficial competition about which of the big three would have the best commercial. There was one year I came home from, from grad school, and all of us buddies met again and watched the Super Bowl 
It's 2011, and the, I think it's the greatest Super Bowl commercial ever. It was called uh, Born from Fire. It was about Detroit. It was about, about um, how the people of Detroit were going to rise above being called the failed city by Time magazine. And it went through everybody, like the people working in the factories, the refinery, burning flames. And then all of a sudden you heard that, you know, and then Eminem walks up to the stage and says, this is the Motor City, and this is what we do. And then it was the Chrysler symbol. Oh, I couldn't have been GM. So these rivalries, they ran deep. But these rivalries and differences, they didn't run deeper than our common allegiance to Jesus Christ and his great commission. This was proven every year in the spring when my church would have what we called Great Commission Sunday. And we'd raise a considerable amount of money that we would send to overseas workers who were taking the gospel to those who had never heard. And quite literally, the profits, the, the spoils of General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler were being brought to the Lord and dedicated to his global mission. And this showed that our allegiance to the Lord really did run deeper than our automotive allegiances. Now, the Roman church in Paul's day faced differences that were even more significant than these. And we get a little bit of a snapshot of this, a window into this in Romans chapter 14. Paul was addressing particular controversies in the church at Rome. And these controversies had the potential of tearing down, tearing the entire fellowship apart. Paul's concern was for the unity in the body of Christ because the Roman church's witness to the world depended on that unity. If the church were united as Jews and Gentiles, this would speak volumes to the unbelieving pagans around them that the nations might glorify God for his mercy, as Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 9. The church in Rome was rocked with several controversies. One controversy was whether one should observe the Jewish food laws after becoming a follower of Christ. Another controversy was whether one should keep the Sabbath or not. Since there were Jews and Gentiles together in the same church at Rome, there were clearly differing opinions on these matters. Some Gentiles, having left the legalism of pagan religion, replaced it with legalistic adherence to Jewish customs, such as kosher laws and Sabbath observance. In addition, some Jews, having placed their confidence in these customs for years, found it hard to transfer their confidence completely to Christ. So certain Jews and certain Gentiles in the church in Rome were struggling to rely solely on Christ, and they were taking comfort in the man-made security of Jewish religiosity. Now Paul calls these brothers and sisters the weak. On the other hand, both Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome, had some of them had actually grasped the gospel, and rather than looking to human customs for their assurance before God, they looked to Christ. And Paul called these the strong, because the, this, this, this confidence in Christ gave them a greater level of freedom with regard to what they ate and how they observed religious days. Now, Paul did indeed have his own opinions on these matters, but what's very interesting and really profound is that his strategy for solving these disputes uh, was not in saying who was right and who was wrong. 
Rather, Paul creates a generous space for disagreement on what he calls opinions or debatable matters. These are matters that do not contradict the gospel that Paul proclaims. Now, recall that Paul, from Romans chapter 1 all the way to our chapter here in, verse, in chapter 14, he, he will not budge one inch on the centrality of the gospel. But, but inside the parameters that are, that, are, that are set by the gospel, he leaves a lot of generous space for disagreement. Now, also... These matters of debate, they do not violate the law of Christ, the law of love for God and love for neighbor. These are matters in which Christians can indeed have genuine disagreements. And because these are matters in which Christians can disagree, Paul needed to demonstrate to the Roman church how Christians can commit to unity even while disagreeing with one another. And Paul bases this commitment to unity on a simple gospel truth. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge, and judgment belongs to him. And because Jesus is the judge, and judgment belongs to him, we should welcome one another, rather than judging or despising one another in our matters of debate. Let's look at how Paul unpacks this from verse, verse 1. He says, first of all, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, not in quarreling over opinions or, or debated matters. So first of all, we have this, this, this command not to judge, not to despise, but to welcome. That concept of, of welcoming one another. In fact, he says later on about a brother that God has welcomed him. God's welcome to us becomes the foundation and the fountain from which our welcome should overflow to one another. You see, th those who chose to, to eat the food and express that freedom, they were tempted to look down on those who chose not to eat. They were, they were tempted to despise them for their abstaining from eating. And those who chose to abstain were tempted to look on those who chose to eat with judgment as if they were making a bad decision. Paul says, instead of having that attitude of despising on the one hand or judging on the other hand, welcome one another. And what does this welcome look like? Uh, I was thinking through analogies or illustrations in this week, and uh, I couldn't think of a better one than the, the uh, musical Les Miserables. Now, I, I cry at movies, so uh, when I start to read the next few lines, if I start to choke up, I apologize ahead of time. And also, if I start uh, breaking out into spontaneous song, I apologize ahead of time. Now, we know the plot. I think most of us do that Jean Valjean, a, a convict on parole in early 19th century France, is destitute and finds himself on a cold, wintry night, collapsed on the doorsteps of a church where the Bishop of Dean offers him the welcome of Christ. The bishop says, come in, sir, for you are weary, and the night is cold out there. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. I love that sacramental imagery. There is a bed to rest till morning, rest from pain and rest from wrong. Now, Valjean responds to this generosity by stealing as much silver as he can and running away 
only to be caught and beaten by the constables and brought back to the church for questioning. Valjean has the audacity to claim that the bishop had given him those stolen silver dishes. When the bishop walks in, Valjean knows that it's back to prison for him, maybe even death. But the bishop surprises everyone by saying that he actually did give those valuables to the thief. In fact, he goes over the top by placing the finest piece of silver, the candlesticks, into the hands of Valjean. And he says, my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? And he turns to the constables. So, messieurs, you may release him, for this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty, and God's blessing go with you. And he turns to Jean Valjean. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. And this is the part that always makes me choke up. Mm. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. This is such a beautiful picture of the welcome that Christ has given to us undeserving sinners before a holy God. And if God has welcomed us in this overflowing, over-the-top, generous way, if he has already judged us and judged us as if we had never done anything wrong because of the righteousness of Christ, then we also should welcome one another with that same generosity. Now, one may ask, okay, uh, if this is uh, the attitude we should have one to another, how should I personally make my own decision on these complex issues that are up for debate? Well, in the next section, verses 5 through 8, Paul uh, unpacks this a little bit. He gives us some, um, some principles that we can use to determine how to, how to make our decisions. So look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The key here is in two phrases. First of all, in honor of the Lord, and secondly, giving thanks to God. Whatever you do, do it out of reverence for the Lord, as for his honor, and with thanksgiving, for the God who has bought you. So whether you choose to eat in this case, do it out of gratitude for the food that God has provided. And whether you choose to, if you choose to abstain, do it out of a sense of gratitude to God that you want to honor him. Now, doing it in this way tests our own hearts to see what our motives truly are. Now, think of how Paul, uh, actually, he, he lived this out in his own life. Um, Paul, a first century Jew, uh, we know that he celebrated the Jewish Passover. We, we know that when he entered the Jewish temple in the book of Acts, he did, he did so with respect for the purification rites. And he, he kept those purification rites, not because he thought that his salvation depended on it, but most likely it was out of gratitude for the Lord or the Lord's promises and out of a desire to honor the Lord and to reach his fellow Jews for Christ. Honor for the Lord and gratitude to God. Paul gives even stronger reasons in verses 7 and 8. 
None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And when it comes down to it, every choice we make, every breath we breathe, should be done for the Lord because we belong to God. I love it how the Heidelberg Catechism says it. Uh, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not one hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. If this is who I belong to, if this is what Christ has gone through to purchase me and, and make me his very own, then every decision I make, especially in these debatable matters, should be made for him. Now, in the, in the next few verses, Paul takes it up another notch, and he brings it all back to the central theme of Romans. He brings it back to the gospel Look at what he says about Jesus. To this end, Christ died and lived again. That's the gospel right there. Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or, or, or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, Paul uh, reminds his, his audience here, uh, the church in Rome, that Jesus is the judge. Judgment belongs to him. So who are we to judge one another on these matters of debate? And then Paul quotes uh, in the next verse, in verse 11, he quotes from Isaiah 45, As it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. This is a gospel truth that we confess every Sunday when we say the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Now this quotation from Isaiah 45, it's important to understand in its own context, because this is the, this is the Lord, Yahweh, speaking to the nations, speaking that, that he is the Lord of all, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess and then it goes on to say a prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus. It says that all the offspring of Israel will be justified and glory. These two parallel truths, that God is the judge and that God's people will be justified. In other words, God, the righteous judge who knows all the thoughts and attitudes of all of our hearts, has found a way in Christ, has planned a way in Christ to make us right, even in that perfect judgment. How can that be but for the grace of God? So even as we as believers look forward to that final day when every thought and every word of ours will be judged before God, we can know with confidence that because of Christ, we stand right before God. We stand in right relationship before God. Now because of this amazing truth, who are we to judge one another? Who are we to despise one another in these matters that are up for debate? If we grasp the gospel, 
if we grasp how Jesus, what he has gone through to purchase us, and if we grasp the love of God and the welcome of God, then we have a renewed vision one for another. And this vision naturally leads to three points of application that I think are actually rather urgent in our current context. Let's ask a first question. How do I, in the first place, determine what is a debatable matter? I think we can ask some diagnostic questions here. First of all, does it contradict the gospel? Remember how the gospel is what sets the parameters for matters of debate in Romans 14, 8 through 9. Remember, Paul brings it back to the gospel and shows us what Jesus has accomplished. And within those parameters, we can uh, have room for debate. Another question we could ask is, do these matters violate the law of Christ? Namely, love for God and love for neighbor. Remember how Paul set up these parameters for living rightly by the law of Christ in our previous chapter, Romans 13. Now, once we make it through these two tests, there's a lot of room for diverse opinions. We have, for example, the, um, uh, the Nicene Creed, which we declare every Sunday in church, it's written to guard the church against false gospels. So it, it marks out the non-negotiables, the matters that are not up for debate. Or thinking about the law of Christ, think about slavery. It's not, list, it's not named in, in the creed, but it fundamentally violates the law of Christ, love for neighbors. So slavery should never have been a matter of debate. It offends the law of God. Or think about sexual ethics. What we do with our bodies matters to God, and the Bible makes it clear that one can't continue in sexual immorality and claim to love God. These kinds of issues are not up for debate. But there's a whole, like, once you know the gospel and you know the law of Christ, then there's this huge space in between where there are matters that we can disagree on. So our second question is, how should I treat a brother or sister who has chosen a different path than me on one of these debatable matters. To bring up one example that's really uh, pertinent for us today, think of COVID precautions. Sadly, churches across the U.S. have divided over what the appropriate response to COVID should be. And these are matters that are up for good debate. For example, one can advocate, advocate strict COVID precautions out of love for the immunocompromised and the physically vulnerable. On the other hand, one can make the point that lifting restrictions out of love, that we should lift restrictions out of love for those who need more embodied physical interactions. And these are tricky issues. There are no easy answers. But when I look at the decisions of those with whom I disagree, what races through my mind and heart? Am I judging them for what appears to me to be a lack of concern? Or am I despising them for what appears to me to be self-righteousness? And who am I to judge or despise? Jesus is the judge, not me. And only God knows the heart of my fellow believer. Am I willing to extend the welcome of Christ to those with whom I disagree? And the welcome of Christ, it might look like passing the peace on a Sunday service. It might look like a phone call, an email, or a Zoom chat with someone who is housebound. It might look like literally having someone in your living room with whom you disagree. There's no perfect formula here, but in whatever way is possible for you, 
overcome your urge to judge or despise by extending the welcome of Christ. Judgment belongs to the Lord, so welcome one another. Now, now Paul, uh, when he uses these, these terms about matters of debate, he's not trivializing these matters. They are indeed very important. But if you choose to refrain from a particular activity, he says, don't judge the one who chooses to participate in it. And if you choose to participate in that particular activity, don't look down on the one who chooses to refrain. And as we seek to apply this today, and this is something that convicted me in this past week as I was praying through this passage, don't assume that your position is the strong and that the other side is the weak. Because that might be an implicit way of saying you have one up on the person that you disagree with. And even if your position is the strong, then you should be expected to show greater levels of sacrifice to the weak. You're called to lay down your life more and sacrifice more for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. Above all, again, welcome one another in the Lord as the Lord has welcomed you, namely with the self-sacrifice of the cross. Leads us to a third question. How do we make our own decisions about these debatable matters? Um, Paul unpacked that for us, but I want to kind of make it practical for us today. Another example from my own life, Facebook came out during my freshman year at college. They'll date me there. Now, ever since Facebook came up, I have had a tortured relationship with social media. For me, it has always been a way of pulling my soul in too many directions through constant news feeds. Anyways, for the first decade or so after Facebook came out, every now and then I would write a sanctimonious post about how I was better than everybody else for leaving the evils of social media. And then I would cancel all my accounts. But then a few months later, guess what? Back on social media. Eventually, I decided to pull the plug completely and cancel my social media accounts once and for all about two years ago. But this time around, I assessed my own motives. I didn't write any selfish, or sorry, self-righteous farewell Facebook posts. Rather, I realized that this is one of those Romans 14 matters. I think there are many Christians who can make use of social media in constructive ways without suffering the downsides. Now, while I'm grateful to God for freedom in my own life that I experienced by, by cutting off the, the plug to social media, I'm also glad that there are others who use it for kingdom purposes, including Tinbeat and Stephen on the Res Instagram page. Actually, Stephen will tell you that the number of times, he's lost count the number of times I've asked him how to turn something on that's electronic. And so my, uh, my reticence or my, my uh, disavowal of all social media might just be um, some kind of philosophical explanation for why I'm just terrible with technology. <laughs> but the point is, when we make these decisions to do it out of honor for the Lord and out of gratitude for what he has done to make us his own, because judgment belongs to the Lord, we should live for him with the gratitude in our heart. Ask yourself this question, what are my motives for participating or refraining? Or is this choice in honor of the Lord? Is this choice with gratitude in my heart to God? 
And what will Jesus, who knows the thoughts and intentions of my heart, say to me on judgment day for my choice that I've made? Brothers and sisters, friends, our unity amidst matters of debate is about more than just getting along. Our very mission of kingdom diplomacy starts here in the house of God. If we can be united, even in the midst of our disagreements, if we can extend the welcome of Christ one to another, then we can be a shining beacon of hope to a broken world around us. Our witness to the world depends on this unity. So may God help each one of us to love him to welcome one another, and to celebrate this peace of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.